All right. Good morning, Faith Church. What's going on, everybody? You guys can grab a seat. My name is Steve Husky, lead pastor here at Faith Church. I want to welcome everybody. We say it every week. Come on, that we believe Jesus. He is. Come on, say it with me. He's the hope of the world. Never lose sight of the hope that Jesus promises. Whoever you are, whatever you're going through, your issue, your hurt, your heartache, or your habit, if you'll open up your life to Jesus, it'll be the greatest decision that you've ever made. Well, listen, uh, real quick before we jump back in, last week we started this series, Cover to Cover. Everybody say that, Cover to Cover. We're covering from cover to cover, Old Testament to New Testament, from Genesis to Revelation, God's Word, what it is. My hope in my heart is to give you a picture of Scripture, to give you a picture of Scripture. But real quick, last week, in order to help this out, um, I created a card. I created the content, and our design team did a great job laying it out. These, I think there's some in your seat back. There's some out. If you didn't get one of these, I'd encourage you to grab one. Just stick it in your Bible. It just gives you a chronological timeline of the Old Testament and the New and also, because uh, I think, man, reading God's Word is important, because that's really the end goal in this message series, is not to give you content, but to give you some uh, connection. And we ultimately find connection and, and revelation of who God is and what God is doing in His Word. And so I know a lot of people are going digital, and maybe I'm just old school, but I love a physical copy of God's Word. And so we preach from typically the New Living Translation on Sunday mornings. It's very easy to read and easy to understand. So if you have an old Bible that's hard for you to understand, these are only $10. We don't have a lot of them left, but you stop at Merch, either, either in Florence or Lawrenceburg. You can pick one of these copies up. If you don't have $10, we'll give you some. People, it was so great. Let me tell you how great Faith Church is. I just made that statement last week. I said, listen, if you don't have $10, we'll give you a copy. We had, peop we had more people give $10 than get Bibles to make sure everybody had a Bible. So, but if we run out of Bibles, we're still keeping your $10. I'm just letting you know. That's just disclosure. Disclosure. I'm not keeping the $10. I just want to make that clear. I'm not keeping it unless you give it to me, and then I'm keeping that too. So anyways. <laughs> so uh, a couple years ago, about two years ago, uh, just before COVID, um, some of you guys know uh, Pastor CJ and his wife, Kristen, who've been with us a few times. In fact, Kristen was just with us recently for the garden. Come on, we got a garden event coming up in September, not too far away. And uh, anyway, so he's had the opportunity to preach here, and I've had the opportunity to preach where he was pastoring out in Minneapolis. And if you've ever been to Minneapolis or you know about Minneapolis, it is the land of lakes. There are more lakes, I think, there than anywhere else in our nation. But one of the things that it's known for, and some of you will love this more than others, it, it is the place, it is the home of Mall of America. Over 500 stores of heaven or hell, depending on how much you like to shop. Like, if you love to shop, like, that's the place you can just get, lose yourself and lose your money. When we went there, my wife and I, we got to hang out, and we spent the day, uh, we were supposed to, like, spend the day shopping, but I didn't tell my wife, but I called and reported all of our credit cards stolen. They weren't, but <laughs> maybe I don't have any cash, and I don't know why our cards aren't going through, so... But here's the thing. If you've ever been in places like that in malls or shopping centers or outlet malls, uh, it's easy if you're not familiar with the space to lose your place. And so they have pictures like this. This is just a random mall picture I found. Like, you ever saw one of these? You walk into an entrance, and you're trying to figure out where am I, where is that store, you know, where's, where's you know, whatever store you're looking for, and you'll have these spots, you are here. And what it does is, in the middle of this incredibly large facility or building, it gives you context to your surroundings. 
So you, are, you know where you are in the building. Am I in the beginning? Am I in the middle of it? Am I the east end, the west end? If I'm by Dillard's, how do I get to Macy's? If I'm by Macy's, how do I get to American Eagle? If I'm by American Eagle, how do I get to the Gucci store? Let's go. Where's the Louis Vuitton purse store? Don't act like you ain't got any Louis. I've seen some of you walking around here. They might be a fake Louis, but you fooled me. But again, you are here. It just gives us context. Well, the goal of this series, Cover to Cover, is to give us context of where you find yourself in the story of Scripture. Again, because at the end of the day, a lot of us who are going to church or reading our Bibles, even if you've been doing it from the time that you were a child or if you're just new to spiritual things, it's easy just to open up the Bible and do a devotion or to show up on Sunday morning and hear a message and to get some content. And not just content, but to get you some concepts. That's what my goal is, is we peel back the pages of Scripture and we look at a specific story, stories like the crossing of the Red Sea or David and Goliath or Jesus on the Sea of Galilee with the storm. There are all these different stories that are told and we get content. It's my job. I get paid the big bucks to give you con, uh, concepts like how do we apply this to our life? What does it look like to live out our faith? That story was written 2,000 years ago. What does it mean in 2021 in Northwest Alabama or Middle Tennessee? But at the end of the day, the larger story is in the context. That even though we have content and we have concepts, where are you at in the story? Because the Bible, we said this last week, the Bible is not a book. The Bible is a library of books. It's a library of 66 individual, independent, independent but interconnected books, which means they all connect together. We said this last week that the Old Testament, there are 39 books. In the New Testament, there's 27. The Bible was written over a span of 1,500 years by 40 different authors in three different languages, Hebrew, Greek, and Aramaic, over three different continents by an entirely different group of authors. Some were kings, some were, uh, some were tax collectors, uh, some were shepherds. It's an incredible book because what makes it incredible is that these 66 books written over this incredibly long span of time tell one story, and the one story is his story. The goal of the Bible is for us to get an understanding of who God is, who you are, and God's plan to rescue humanity. The Bible is a rescue story. And the good news is you are a part, and I'm a part, we get to be a part of his story. History is his story. And so last week, we ran through the books of the Old Testament. Again, the Old Testament and the New Testament, the way they fit together, is the Old Testament is the New Testament concealed, and the New Testament is the Old Testament revealed. The Old Testament is a lot of foundation. The New Testament is a lot of fulfillment. The Old Testament is looking forward to what God is going to do. The New Testament is looking back at what God has done. It is the culmination of the cross. It is a book that's all about God. It's all about Jesus and who he is and what he's done. And so in order to give us this context, I used these last week. Again, we're going to run through them pretty quick. I'm going to go back to the Old Testament, start over real quick. If you weren't here last week, I would encourage you to go back and listen to the message. But it starts in Genesis 1-1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. In Genesis, the very first book of the Bible, again, I'm going to give you the context, the storyline of the entire Bible. It's impressive what I'm about to do. I don't know if you appreciate the magnitude of what's about to go down. Thank you. I got one. one it was literally, this is what I got right there. Sorry. 
I can tell you'll make me work for it today. Genesis 1-1, again, is this huge idea, this huge concept. Genesis, the book of beginnings, it gives us the beginning, not of God. God doesn't have a beginning. He is eternal. But it introduces us to this idea. And right away, I know some of you, some of you watching this online or Lawrenceburg, when you hear Genesis, when you hear in the beginning God created, cultures told you that there's a conflict between science and scripture. There is not a conflict. Science and scripture are contemporaries. If you don't believe me, do your own research, do your own deep dive into the context and into the story of, of scripture and science and how they are connected. Scripture is not a science textbook, but everything it says about science has been proven over and over again to be correct. In fact, many of the early fathers of science, Newton, Galileo, Boyle, Pascal, Kepler, are and or were Christians, and they had no conflict in their faith and in God. But the reason for the book of Genesis is to let us know who God is, that God is a creator. He created all of this from the quasars to the flowers, to the birds, to the bee, to the fish in the seas, the birds in the air, the animals on earth. God's not just a creator. God is powerful. God is good. God is holy. He has a standard because when he made Adam and he made Eve, he made boundaries. He made rules, one rule. It gave us the free will to choose whether we would do it his way or our way. If you want God's best, come on, we say it all the time, you got to do it God's way. And ultimately, Adam and Eve did what many of us do. They created cosmic treason, rebellion against the creator, chose to do life on their terms instead of God. And so we find that God ultimately, they were separated, Adam and Eve, from God's presence. God expelled them from the garden. But before he did that, we find that this is the place that God introduces this incredible concept called atonement. Everybody say atonement. Atonement, it's this idea that you and I are sinners. We are all rebellious. We've all broken God's law. And right in the beginning, the very first time it happens, God could have wiped out Adam and Eve. He could have started over, but he chose to provide atonement. Atonement is this idea of making us at one. We are separated from our Savior because of our sin. And he reconnects us to our creator through atonement. Atonement is an innocent third party loses his life so the sinner can go free. And so right when this happens, an innocent animal is slaughtered and God covers Adam and Eve with the skin of the animal. It is a picture of ultimately what God's going to do. Come on. Remember, it's, all, it's his story. There is eventually going to be an innocent third party that's slaughtered on behalf of sinners so you and I can go free. Come on. If you already know what that means, you ought to make some noise for Jesus. I ain't going fast enough. I ain't going to make this. You go through the story, and the rest of the book of Genesis introduces us, come on, to the big three, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. God introduces himself to this man, Abraham. Ultimately, he is going to be the guy that the nation of Israel is born out of. He's old. He can't have kids. His wife is old, can't have kids, but they still got it going on because they're still doing the dirty, dirty. Because you got to do that if you want to have a kid. Some of you haven't figured out, that's why you keep having kids. You got five kids, that's, that's the thing. That's what's doing it. And so God blesses Abraham and his wife, Sarah. Even though they're in old age, God fulfills his promise to give them a child. Out of that one child, Isaac becomes an entire nation. Isaac gives birth to uh, his family line. His family line gives birth to Jacob. Jacob, I told you last week, has 12 sons. Some of you think you're having a hard time with your kids. 12 sons. And they ultimately become the 12 tribes of the nation of Israel. You follow their story, and ultimately they end up in this place called Egypt. And while they're in Egypt during this time of famine, 
Pharaoh decides that there's too many of them because they're the multiplication of a nation. The nation of Israel explodes in population. Pharaoh is afraid that they're going to take over the land, so he enslaves them. And the nation of Israel are slaves in the land of Egypt for 400 years, which takes us into the book of Exodus. God sends Moses a deliverer, Moses the stutterer, because God can use broken people to do incredible things. God sends Moses into the land of Egypt to rescue the nation of Israel out from underneath the bondage of Pharaoh. It is a picture of what ultimately Jesus is going to do, that Jesus sent his son, our father sent his son. Jesus to be our rescuer to deliver you and I out of the land of sin. Come on, is anybody thankful for broken chains? And so God breaks the chains of enslavement. They're set free. They go from Egypt into the wilderness on their way to the greatest real estate deal, the promised land. Some of you guys are having a hard time. I know we got some real estate agents in the house. The real estate agent of The eternity was the land that God promised all the way back to Abraham, all the way to Moses. But while they're in the wilderness, this thing happens. They find themselves on the mountain, Mount Sinai. Moses gets the Ten Commandments. There's some other stuff that happens, but God gives really Moses three things that he delivers to the people. First of all, he gives them a picture of how to build the tabernacle. The tabernacle was the portable church. It's where God's presence was. It was this idea that they would take it with them, and wherever the tabernacle was, God's presence was, was a picture that wherever you go, God's with us. He gave them the tabernacle. He gave them the sacrificial system because we, we still need atonement because we're still sinners. The book of Leviticus is the entire sacrificial system. And he gave him the priesthood. One of the 12 sons of Jacob, Levi, his entire family line became priests that did the sacrifices in the tabernacle. That's important. There was a priesthood, there was a sacrificial system, and there was a tabernacle. And you go through, and they finally get into the promised land because Moses doesn't make it. God hands the baton off to the J-man, Joshua. Joshua takes the nation of Israel into the promised land. That is the book of Joshua. It is an entire book of the nation of Israel going in and kicking butt and displacing people and taking over. That's what it's about. But they don't do everything God says. Just like you and I, they only do partial obedience, and partial obedience is disobedience and so God has to raise up the next book God raises up this group of people called the judges the book of judges is a book of judges not guys or gals in black robes with gavels but these were military spiritual and political leaders because you find in the story again their life matches ours has anybody here ever gone through a season of obedience like you just want to do what God said, you just wanted to honor God with your life, and you made some really good decisions? Come on, wave at me if you've gone through a good season. Anybody here ever gone through a tough season where you like just, you know what God said, but you just wasn't going to do it, I'm doing things my way? Come on, raise your hand if you've ever gone through those seasons. How many is in one of those seasons? Come on, just be honest. I just need some Jesus today. That's why we're here to experience life change. And so they kept going through. A lot of us, we have dishwashers and clothes washers that have a spin cycle. They were on the sin cycle. The sin cycle that the nation of Israel was under was under this idea that they would sin. They would ultimately rebel against doing it God's way. They would experience ruin. And then they would repent, God, we're sorry, because sometimes it's in our lowest moments that we call out to God on high. And God would always respond with restoration. And so they would go from rebellion to ruin to repentance to restoration. 
And the entire book of Judges is this cycle. And this is where we find Gideon and Deborah and Samson. And then you get to the end and you get to the next section of books. And ultimately, the nation of Israel, they want a king because that's what other nations have. And so Samuel, the book of First and Second Samuel, this guy Samuel, the last judge, says, listen, you don't want a king. But they're like, we want a king because we want it what other nations have. And so God gives them a king, king by the name of King Saul. King Saul drops the ball. King David takes over, one of the greatest kings in the nation of Israel, a man after God's own heart, but he dropped the ball. Bed, bath, and beyond on the rooftop at night, hooked up with this girl Bathsheba beyond her wishes, gets her pregnant, but he still repents. He's the guy who wrote many of the Psalms. Psalm 51 is this cry of repentance, rebellion, ruin, repentance, restoration. David repents. And ultimately, we see that this guy Solomon comes on the scene. Solomon is David's son, also a great king who wrote Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon. And even though he did a lot of good, in fact, he was the guy who went from building the tabernacle, Moses, to the temple. It was no longer portable. It was permanent. Everybody say the temple. The temple was where God's presence hung out. Remember this? I don't know if anybody's ever heard this scripture, that God inhabits the praises of his people. Everybody say that. God inhabits the praises of his people. Say it again. It's important. God inhabits the praises of his people, which means if you go where God is, God will meet you there. And so there was the temple. But Solomon lost his mind with a thousand wives because that's what a thousand wives will do. One, well, it's only 700 wives, actually but 300 concubine, he couldn't really commit on the other 300. I'm not sure. I'm going to keep you close enough. Nobody else can have you, but not close enough to commit. Some of you in relationships like that, run. Come on, put a ring on it. Oh, I'm making it awkward for some boys in this house in Lawrenceburg. That's all right. You can blame me. And so he ultimately rebels. The kingdom, the nation of Israel is divided from the north to the south. The kingdom of Israel in the north, ten kingdoms, the kingdom of Judah in the south, two kingdoms. They continue to rebel. The kingdom of Israel in the north have 19 kings in succession. They're all wicked. They all lead God's people down the wrong way. And so God allows the nation of Assyria to come in and wipe them out. They get evicted from the promised land. But the kingdom of Judah, they're a little more righteous. They have 20 kings, a handful of them are righteous, a handful of them try to lead God's people the right way. But ultimately, they rebel. And so God allows the next global superpower. Did you know that? The Bible is history. One of the first global superpowers of the known world was Assyria. The next one was Babylon. Babylonians came in, wiped out the Assyrians, and wiped out the nation of Judah. And they were displaced from the promised land. And this is where you find guys like Daniel, the book of Daniel. Daniel was living in the kingdom of Judah, was taken and put into the king's court under King Nebuchadnezzar, the Babylonian king. Come on. Shut the mouths of the lions. Shut your mouth. That's where that came from. I just made that up. It didn't come from that at all. But how many people know that we serve a faithful God? Come on, if you repent and turn your heart to God, God will always turn your situation around. And we find ultimately because they come to this place of repentance and brokenness that God calls them to do a turnaround where, he was, where they were removed from the land. They get called back to the land. This is where you get the book of Ezra, where the priest goes back and establishes worship, where Nebuchadnezzar goes back and rebuilds the broken down walls of Jerusalem. Come on, God is all about restoration through all of these periods, through the 
the kings, through all of this, this is where the prophets are prophesying, where they are warning God's people, turn from your sin, where he's calling them to repentance. But at the end of the day, the prophets are prophesying that there is coming a king, that there is coming not a, not a king like Solomon or a king like David or a king like any other king, that there is coming this rescuer, this Messiah, this redemption. There's going to be this brand new kingdom that's going to change and transform the whole world. The prophets are saying, listen, it's bad now, but better is coming and the best is on its way. But then you get to the end of the Old Testament, the end of the story of the nation of Israel, at least as it plays out in the Bible. And for 400 years, from the Old Testament to the New, God goes silent. He stops, the prophets stop prophesying. You find that the Israelites have gone back to Jerusalem. They've gone back to their city. They've gone back to their land, but it's broken During 400 years, remember I told you about the Assyrians, the Babylonians, the next global superpower, the Persians. The Persians then get wiped out by the Greeks, and then the Greeks get wiped out by the Roman Empire, and that's where you find yourself when you turn to the New Testament. Everybody say New Testament. The New Testament, come on, when you open up the New Testament, who's with me today? It's all about the Fantastic Four. The Fantastic, I'm not talking about the Human Torch, is it upside down? Keep going. I don't feel like you're celebrating me. I feel like you're making fun of me. Yay. The seal caught the ball on his nose. I'm not coming next week. Absence will make the heart grow fonder. The Fantastic Four, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they are the first four books of the New Testament. You step into, you open the page up, and the Roman Empire is ruling the nation of Israel. They are dwelling mostly in that area, but primarily in the city of Jerusalem. The temple was destroyed, but it's now been rebuilt. The Ark of the Covenant is gone. There's all this, all this religion, but there's no peace. There's no heart. There's nothing really behind it. The Pharisees and the Sadducees are ruling overneath the local Jewish people, making sure that they are trying to keep the law that they were taught in the Old Testament, and they've added laws on laws that, like, you got to do all these crazy things, and if you don't do it the right way, God won't love you, and God won't accept you, and you peel back the pages, and you find the New Testament. We are introduced to Jesus, who has shown up to be our Moses, to rescue us from our Egypt, to take us into our promised land. Come on, it's all about him. It is a him story. Why four Gospels? I'm glad you asked. Four Gospels, Matthew, they all have a unique audience, even though you can read all of them together and you can glean something from them. Matthew was written primarily to a Jewish audience, which is why you have so many of Old Testament, you have more Old Testament scriptures in the book of Matthew than any other gospel. Why? Because Matthew was writing to convince the Jewish audience that Jesus was in fact the Messiah. Did you know that Jesus personally fulfilled over 300 of the Old Testament prophecies about what the Messiah would say? do. Some of them he had the ability to do on his own, but some he had no ability over. For example, it was prophesied that not one bone would be broken. Even though it was common when a criminal was on the cross, they would break his legs. They were about to do that to Jesus, but they didn't, fulfilling the prophecy that not one bone would be broken. You could go on and on and on, but Jesus clearly fulfilled all of the prophecies demonstrating that he was the Messiah, the rescuer the deliver. Mark, Mark wrote to a Roman audience. The Romans were all about authority and all about action. Don't, don't talk about it, be about it. That's a message series right there, which is why the book of Mark has more ands 
A-N-D than any other book because when the gospel was written, it was ultimately Peter penned by Mark. He was saying Jesus did this and Jesus did this. There are more miracles in the book of Mark than any other gospel because Jesus was a man of action and power. Is anybody thankful for that? Come on, we got a God who doesn't just talk about it. He is about it. And then you get the gospel of Luke. Luke was written to the Greeks, and they were always about the perfect man, which is why a lot of their statues and their carved, chiseled art of bodies, they were always looking for the perfect man. And Luke was saying, Jesus, he is the perfect man. The gospel of John was written to a general audience, letting us know that he wasn't just the son of man, but he was the son of God. And it starts this way. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. The word was God. The word was God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. That God stepped out of heaven, wrapped himself in humanity, stepped on this dirty earth to live a perfect life and to die a sacrificial death so our Moses could rescue us from our Egypt and take us into our promised land. I wish somebody would make some noise. Come on, cover to cover. What is the Gospels about? Really, it's the whole book, but it's all about him, Jesus. What, is, what are the Gospels about? Again, it's just like watching maybe NBC, CBS, or ABC, the three at one point major news networks. 60% of the content is the same from gospel to gospel because they're telling many of the same stories from different perspectives, sometimes sharing different, not conflicting, but different details. But Jesus is all about, really, the message of the gospels is all about him. Primarily, it's about the person of Jesus, the preaching of Jesus. The power of Jesus. Let's talk about the person of Jesus. He wasn't just a regular guy. Again, Jesus, and this is so important you get this. If you're on the fence of faith, if you're not sure, do I dive in or do I get out? There are lots of people. Muslims are one. Muslims will say that Jesus was a great prophet. There's some people, right, today, even walking this earth, will say, I don't know about Jesus. He was a great teacher. Well, see, he doesn't leave you at the place you get to pick who he is. Jesus made certain claims about who he was. Scripture makes claims about who he was. Hebrews says he's the exact representation of the Father. Jesus said, you want to know what the fathers look like? Look at me. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Jesus, when there was a debate one time, he was debating the religious leaders, and they're like, hey, man, our father's Moses. You can trace our family line back to Moses. And Jesus said, well, you can trace my family line a different direction. He said, before Abraham was, I am. He was claiming the name of God. I am. I've always been. Which means this. I think C.S. Lewis was the one who originally said it, that he is either Lord, liar, or lunatic. He made claims to be God, and either crazy people make claims to be God. Or he was a liar, he knew he wasn't, yet made outrageous claims. Or he was exactly who he said he was. And so who is the person of Jesus? He was God in the flesh, a perfect man who stepped down, fully God, fully man. What was his, what was his preaching about? His preaching was all about revelation in application. He taught in parables like much what we try to do here. Revelation. This idea of there's a new king and a new kingdom. Revelation. Application. What does it look like to live this out? And ultimately power. Jesus, the entire gospels are about the person, the preaching, and the power of Jesus. He clearly showed he had authority over sickness. He healed multitudes of diseases. He had authority over nature. He stood on the bows of boats and calmed the storm. Peace! And the storms would stop. Anybody wish they could do that in the last couple weeks? I stood on the balcony. I tried to be Jesus. Peace! And it just kept storming. 
You get to the end of the Gospels and they all go the same direction. The most important message of the Bible. It is his story. It is a story of atonement and it all culminates into not Jesus teaching and not Jesus preaching and not the miracles. It all culminates in the cross of Christ. He came to be the sacrifice for all mankind to die in our place. Come on, it's all about atonement. Everybody say atonement. It is about an innocent third party. Jesus was innocent. He lived a perfect, spotless, sinless life. But he said this, he said, nobody takes my life. I willingly lay it down. They're not putting me on the cross. I'm getting on the cross. It wasn't the nails that held him on the cross. It was our sin that put him on the cross. That's who Jesus is, and that's what Jesus did. The Old Testament, lambs were sacrificed. In the New Testament, when John the Baptist saw Jesus, he said, behold the lamb. That's the real lamb. That's the lamb the Old Testament was pointing forward to. The Old Testament is foundation. The New Testament is fulfillment. The Old Testament is looking forward to a perfect lamb. The New Testament, now we look back, that the perfect lamb was sacrificed on the cross of Calvary. But lots of people have died. In fact, maybe you didn't know this, but the Roman Empire was really good and handy at putting people on crosses. The cross was not unique, really. In fact, history tells us there was one time where the Roman Empire had crucified so many criminals that there was a line, I believe, three miles long of crosses. What made the message of Jesus unique, what made him stand out among all the rest of the people who ever hung on crosses wasn't that he went on the cross, wasn't that he came off the cross, and it wasn't that he was put in the tomb, but it was on the third day. One, two, three, he got out of the grave. Come on, somebody, you ought to get on your feet because we serve a God who's greater than death, who's greater than sin, that's greater than struggle, that's greater than brokenness, that's greater than shame, that's greater than humiliation, that's greater than addiction. Come on, he walked out and he said, because I overcome, you overcome. Because I live, come on, you live also. Come on, somebody. Woo! It's all about not just the cross, but the tomb. Not just that he died, but on the third day he rose again. I was going to tell you for all the lawyers who are in the house. I know we got some lawyers who are part of Faith Church. Would you like that case? There's some people who debate that he really rise from the dead. There's really no debate in historicity whether Jesus ever really lived. There's not really much debate if he died. There are some people who debate if Jesus really rose from the dead. Well, the Paul tells us and scripture tells us and history tells us that Jesus revealed himself to the women, to, to the 12, to the disciples. And at one time, come on, listen to this. He revealed himself to over 500, uno, dos, tres, cuatro, cinco, 500 witnesses at one time. How would you like that case? I'd like to call your honor to the witness stand, witness number one. Two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, twenty, thirty, forty, fifty, sixty, seventy, eighty, ninety, a hundred, two hundred, three hundred, four hundred, five hundred witnesses saying, Yep, I hung out with him. We had a meal together. He came to my house and we played some spades. <laughs> for forty days after the resurrection, for forty days after the resurrection, Jesus walked around clearly demonstrating to all of his disciples and all in that area that he was surely alive. And then you get out of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and you get to the next book in the New Testament. It is the book of Acts, not A-X, A-C-T-S. It should be called the book of actions. Because again, God is not a God who talks about it. God is a God who is about it. And then he calls us not to be people who talk about it, but he calls us to be about it. Faith isn't something we talk about. It's something that we live. And so you get to 
Acts chapter 1, and Jesus says this. He gets to the end. He's getting ready to ascend back up to heaven, and he calls his disciples in for a He says, listen, yo, I've taught you all of this stuff. I've given you revelation. I've given you application. I've provided atonement, a covering for your sin. Now you need to go tell the world what I've done. Evangelism is nothing more than a hungry man telling other hungry people where to get bread. Just go tell people where hope is. But pastor, I don't have answers. Did you experience hope? Have you experienced life change? Did you find out that there's really forgiveness and there's really hope that this world can never provide outside of Jesus? Just tell somebody about what God's done for you. And so Jesus says, listen, Matthew 28, the last book in the book of Matthew, he says, go into all the world and preach the gospel. What's the New Testament about? The gospel, good news. Good news is you can't pay for your sin, but somebody did. Good news, you don't have to go to hell. You can spend eternity reconnected with your creator. Good news, you can go free. Good news, you can experience hope. Good news. And so he says this, go into all the world and preach the gospel and baptize them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Teach them to observe everything that I've commanded you. He says, don't you worry about it. I'm with you always. And then he says this, but don't go on your own because you go on your own, you ain't going to make it. You need some help. Jesus, did you know Jesus promised you help? Everybody say 911, 911. Fire come, police come. First responders, we're so thankful for you. Did you know Jesus said 911, the Holy Ghost will come? He promised the Holy Spirit. And he said this in Acts chapter 1, verse 8. Acts is a history book. It's the next 35 years of history from the time Jesus resurrected, 35 years, how the gospel spread in that part of the world. Context. He said in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, and he says, and you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you to be witnesses for me in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. Getting local to getting regional to getting global. Take the message global. I'm thankful that we have kingdom builders here at Faith Church that's helping us to take the message global. We don't want just in Florence and we don't want it just in Lawrenceburg. We want to take the good news global. And so, 50 days after the resurrection, Jesus died on Passover, a religious holiday where lambs were slaughtered for the sin of the nation of Israel, but the Lamb of God was slaughtered for the sins of the world for us. 50 days later, everybody say 50. It was a Jewish holiday called Pentecost, Pente 50, where they would celebrate the first fruits, the beginning of the harvest. Jesus was the first of the harvest of the resurrection because he's not the only one who got out of the grave. Everybody who puts their trust and hope in Jesus isn't going to stay in the grave either. Come on, we get resurrection life. And so on that day, Acts chapter 1, come on, the Holy Ghost fell. The Holy Spirit came and fell on all of those disciples. And it was this opportunity to talk about and for them to understand the book of Acts is all about the Holy Spirit, about power through them and presence in them. Power through them and presence in them. Remember I told you that the temple that God inhabits the praises of his people? Remember that? God doesn't, God doesn't inhabit the praises of his people anymore. God now inhabits the people of his praises. So you used to have to go find him and meet him, and, and he would be there waiting. Now, wherever we are, he's with us. The Holy Spirit is not just with us, but he's in us. And then you go on also Acts chapter 1. Not only the Holy Spirit fell, but the church was born. 
Woo, come on, somebody. And the church is such a powerful concept because it was a way of saying no longer are we individual disciples, but we are a body. Some of you are a hand and an arm and an eye and a neck. Jesus is the head. But it's this idea you're not in this thing alone. We are connected. We encourage each other. We challenge each other. We rebuke one another. It's about this idea that you aren't intended to do life alone. If you're watching online and you're ready to get back, get back to the house because we get to worship together. We get to experience his presence together. We get to live the life of faith together. The church isn't a building. It's a people. The church isn't a message. It's a movement. And you find the church was born. And then the rest of the book of Acts was all about the gospel being preached. And you read it, and Peter stands up for the first time, and he's, he's scared. He's like, I, I don't know if I can get in front of these people. And he gets up, and the presence and the power that Jesus told him he would have comes on him. And he preaches the message. See, the New Testament isn't about new rules. It's the resurrection. The entire message that we live by isn't that you have new rules to live by. It's that you had a Savior who died in your place, atonement, and rose from the dead. And because he lives, we live and so Peter stands up and preaches the message on this first day of Pentecost, and thousands get saved. He's like, that went so good. I think I'm going to do that again. He gets up the next day, and thousands more get saved. And you see the apostle Peter, Peter preaching to the Jews. And then this guy, because persecution breaks out. Let me just tell you, if you really live for Jesus, not everybody's going to love you. If you really live for Jesus, you're going to face some pushback. If you really live for Jesus, this culture, Jesus said, listen, don't be, that if they hated me, they're going to hate you too. And so because Jesus wanted the message to go global, they just had it hanging out in J-Town, hanging out locally in Jerusalem. And so persecution came, Jewish persecution, Jews who were upset Christians were no longer keeping the law, and Roman persecution because Christians were no longer worshiping uh, uh, Roman emperors and no longer worshiping Roman gods. They suffered persecution, which caused them to leave and take the message global. And you get through the book of Acts, and this guy by the name of Saul, Saul is the persecutor of the church. He was a Jew who was mad that these ex-Jews were no longer keeping the law, and so he started murdering Christians. Acts chapter 6, this guy Saul is standing there with his Christian Stephen gets stoned to death. But even a guy like Saul can experience salvation. Even a guy who used to kill Christians can experience salvation. See, the story of this guy, Saul, who eventually becomes, maybe you know him, the Apostle Paul, is this story of hope and inspiration. No matter how far gone you are, no matter how bad your decisions have ever been, there is always redemption available through Jesus. There's always atonement. He can make anybody at one with the Father. And so the rest of the book of Acts is all about this guy by the name of Paul taking the message global. And he goes from city to city to city to city announcing the good news of Jesus. But it didn't just go and travel and go to these cities, but the rest of the New Testament are epistles. Everybody say epistles. We have no idea what that is. Letters. He sends out an email blast. Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, all these books. And you're like, what do these names mean? They're the cities that he went to. The book of Corinthians was the city of Corinth. The book of Galatians was to the church in the city of Galatia. Ephesians was to the, a letter to the church in the book of Ephesus, or the city of Ephesus, the epistles, the letters that many of these guys wrote, primarily the Apostle Paul, were letters to the church to encourage them, 
to warn them, to challenge them about what we believe and how we behave. Because the whole New Testament is not about rules. This thing we do is not about rules. It's about relationship. It is religion cannot save you. What you do cannot save you. It's only what Jesus has done. It is the difference between do and done. What you do is not enough. What Jesus has done is always enough. When I stand before Jesus, he doesn't see me. He sees me hidden in Christ because I am covered. Come on, somebody. I'm covered in Jesus, and so are you if you put your faith in him. And so the apostle Paul writes all of these letters, and he's challenging him. Listen, don't go back to the law. Don't go back to the Old Testament. Don't go back to old sacrifices. Don't go back to thinking you can do enough. Peter writes about persecution because there was still Roman persecution happening. Christians were being burned alive. They were losing their life for their faith. And so you know what he says? He says this crazy line. He says, hey, don't even worry about it. He says, he says be encouraged because this light momentary affliction is just going to last for a moment. James says, count it all joy when various trials and temptations come upon you. It's just for a moment but it's working something in us. And then you get to the last book of the Bible. I'm out of time. This is a powerful book. You may not recognize the symbol, but remember Genesis? Remember there was a tree right in the middle? Do you know what the end of the book is about? Cover to cover, it starts with a paradise and it ends with a paradise. It starts with perfection, it ends with perfection. It starts with humanity having a connection with their creator. The book of Revelation, when you get to the last page, it closes with a tree back in the center of creation. All of sin has been dealt with. All of sickness is healed. All of brokenness is made right. And we get a chance to hang out again one more time in a perfect relationship forever with our creator. It starts started with the temple. God inhabits the praises of his people. And then at Pentecost, the birth of the church, Acts chapter 1, no, God no longer inhabits the praises of his people. Now God inhabits the people of his praises. And in eternity, God's people inhabits his presence with praises for eternity. Is anybody thankful that the message from cover to cover is we were never good enough, but God was always good enough. And he always had a plan from the first sin to wherever you are in your life. He's always had a plan to rescue you and I, and he will fulfill the work to redeem a broken creation and make us right with him one more time. Come on, is anybody thankful for the God we serve? I did it last week and it went so well, I thought I would just run through them one more time. What is the Bible? The Bible is a hymn book. It's all about him from Genesis to Revelation. In Genesis, he is the breath of life. In Exodus, he's our Passover lamb. In Leviticus, he's our high priest. In Numbers, he's our fire by night and cloud by day. In Deuteronomy, he is our great promise keeper. In Joshua, he's the captain of our salvation. In Judges, he's our lawgiver. In Ruth, he's our kinsman redeemer. In First and Second Samuel, he is our prophet. In Kings and Chronicles, he is our reigning king. I'm talking about Jesus. In Ezra, he's our worship. In Nehemiah, he's the rebuilder of broken lives and dreams. In Esther, he's our courage. In Job, he's our encourager and our healer. In Psalms, he is our shepherd. In Proverbs, he's our wisdom. In Ecclesiastes, he's our time and season. In the Song of Solomon, he's the lover's dream. In Isaiah, he is our prince of peace. In Jeremiah, he's the potter and we're the clay. In Lamentations, he's the cry for the nation. In Ezekiel, he's the call from sin. In Daniel, he's the one with us in the fire. 
In Hosea, he's forever faithful. In Joel, he's the Spirit's power. In Amos, he's the arms that carry us. In Obadiah, he is the Lord, our Savior. In Jonah, he's the great missionary. In Micah, he's the promise of peace. In Nahum, he is our strength and our shield. In Habakkuk and Zephaniah, he's pleading for revival. In Haggai, he is our restorer. In Zechariah, he's our fountain. In Malachi, he is the son of righteousness, rising with healing in his wings. Let's talk about the New Testament. Come on, in Matthew, he's the Messiah. In Mark, he's the son of man. In Luke, he is the Savior of the world. In John, he's the son of God. In Acts, he is the fire from heaven. In Romans, he is our great justifier. In Corinthians, he is the power of love. In Galatians, he's the God of grace. In Ephesians, he's the armor of God that cover us. In Philippians, he's our joy. In Colossians, he's preeminent over everything. In Thessalonians, he is our coming king. Come on, somebody. In Timothy, he's the living word. In Titus, he's the pastor's friend. In Philemon, he's our mediator. In Hebrews, he is our high priest. In James, he matures and grows our faith. In First and Second Peter, he is our hope in suffering. In John and Jude, he's the lover coming for his bride. Come on, in Revelation, he is the king of kings. And he is the Lord of lords forever. Come on and make some noise for the God we serve in this place.